I'm Teffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! This week we're continuing Anne of Green April with Anne of the Island, the third book in the Anne series. Uh, Today it's just Bailey and me, and we are talking about this book that's about Anne really becoming an adult. It's definitely a coming of age, uh, leaving behind childish ways. This book occurs between um, Anne's 18th and 20th year, more or less. 21st year it is her college days and uh I like I said like Caddy's not here this week but Caddy and I were just talking we cannot believe how much this book pulled us in good that that delights me I got so sucked in this is actually one of my possibly one of my favorites I think of the Anne books um I love like the friendship I love the like coziness of Patty's place and it makes me just want to like just go be their roommate for a while. I'm I'm delighted that you you were also sucked in and delighted by this book, and I want to hear more about why. Um, and I also want to. So we had we started a conversation last week about how Anne might possibly be a manic pixie dream girl, and I want to revisit that and revise my feelings on it based on this book. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm gonna take those two statements in the order in which you put them forward. So first of all, what I liked about this book. I couldn't believe how modern this feels. And I know we talk about sort of the the turn of the 19th to 20th century being the beginning of like the modern age. Um, But I was really struck by how it it felt like the college experience has not really changed in a hundred years. You have these girls ganging up together, renting a house together. I guess the only difference is that they have an old lady kind of taking care of them and like getting cats and going on dates and staying up till one reading. Um, And I think I think of that as like a very post-sexual revolution kind of life, but it's not. (laughs) Um, And it was really interesting to have that little reminder that like there's continuity in the last hundred years our lives have not like obviously our lives have changed in some really significant ways particularly technologically but it's interesting to think that maybe like structurally our lives have not really changed in a hundred years yeah I like that I like that observation a lot and I also definitely got that feeling from this book that it's like yeah they're just like other girls going to college and there are certainly some differences um and I mean, I think I think you have to have a, a house mother because you don't have electricity. Um, I think that's the I think that's the the uh, the equation there. Um, but yeah, it does feel very like more about it feels relatable than not, uh, except for maybe the subjects that they're taking. But yeah, yeah. School wise, it seems much more general education. Like, there, it's not as specialized. You're not doing majors or anything. You have your college courses, which are essentially advanced high school courses, plus Greek and Latin. Yeah, I think it's the very classic, like, liberal arts 
model, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. like English and Greek and Latin and algebra and geometry and maybe some philosophy too. Had just a sudden realization about myself because the instant you said algebra, I almost went. So I guess that's how glad I am that I did not have to take math in college. (laughs) The other thing that I really, really appreciate about this book, and it really is the thing about this book, is everybody is concerned with love. And the thing that is different about 100 years ago is everybody's getting married at 18 to 20. And so, you know, when they date, you're, you're thinking about marriage, which actually for me is really familiar because the community I grew up in was very much like that. And I did, in fact, get married at 20. Um, but uh, it's not, you know, maybe more generally a normal practice these days. I relate so closely to Anne... Anne's approach to romance in general, because Anne loves romance, sort of the capital R in stories and books, and she's really exploring like both how to think about it and how to write it. Um, But then she really doesn't know how to translate that into figuring out what she wants from a relationship. And she feels very uncomfortable when she has strong feelings and we see this her relationship with Gilbert um just really resonated for me because it's very much my history of having somebody who you know I like them and I want to be with them all the time and they make me really happy and they're super super great but no I'm not in love with them um and she kind of has to have this reality check of ideals versus realities and not marrying your expectations, but marrying a person. Um, And that's a really strong theme throughout the book. We see it with Phil, who like I really want to get into because she's a fantastic character. Pure Libra, right? (laughs) Yeah, very much so. I I also adore Philippa Gordon very, very much. So, yes. She irritates the, the living Jesus out of me, but I love her and I understand her really personally. Yeah, it's just a really fun exploration of kind of what it means to grow up and what it means to fall in love and who you want in your life and growing out of your childhood hometown and figuring out who you are professionally. And I liked that a lot. I uh, I was like, I think I got really drawn in maybe like after she turned down her first proposal in it. That was really when it kind of scooped for me. She turns down, when she turns down Billy Andrews? Yeah, yeah. And then like, but like really the Gilbert, you know, I've never understood the Gilbert Ann relationship. And I think that's because I've never read the Gilbert Ann relationship. Yeah, yeah. If you've (laughs) only read to, you had only read to the end of Anne of Avonlea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's not, this is when it really builds in this book. And then in the next one. Um yeah, no, I love, I really, yeah, this book is all sort of about, like, expectations versus reality and, like, what our idea of things is going to be and then what they actually are. And I just, I love that so much. And I, I really want to get into that. I also want to get into Phil. I also just love how this book is punctuated by proposals and how, like, <laughs> how each of them goes down um, is just wonderful because uh, how many times does Anne Anne gets proposed to six times in this book now that is something that feels less modern two of them are the same person 
but I think you also have to like view this as like I think like I think different I think that this is showing us that different men viewed marriage proposals in various ways but like for some of these men a marriage proposal is equivalent to like asking somebody out on a first date now it's like a combination between like a first like asking someone on a first date and like hiring when you don't really interview or you're just like you I would like you to work for me I was gonna say it's like a job it's like a job offer oh for for some of these men it is very much a job offer there's a wonderful point after Anne's first proposal that whole scene so Anne's first proposal we can spoil these books they are a hundred years old Anne's first proposal uh is a schoolmate of hers who proposes to her through his sister so gets his sister who is having a sleepover Anne to be like so uh do you want to marry my brother Anne very swiftly and decisively turns it down because she has no interest in Billy Andrews um but then has this little moment of of grief because it's not how she imagined her first proposal would be and she's kind of facing this reality that um romance proposals marriage is not all the idealized fantasy and that for different people it means different things and later she does get the fantasy um but she is you know in the same way you get a little crushed if your first kiss is bad it's sort of like oh that was my first proposal and you know it it wasn't great so is proposals in this era the equivalent of like you know how there's all this like scientific research about like you have to go you have to date on average x number of people before you find like your life partner in you know sort of a an understanding of monogamy. Um, is it is it sort of like that logic, but just with proposals? It's like, I don't know, you got to propose to three or four girls before you find the one who you're going to actually marry. Um, it's just like a numbers game. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because like one of the things that struck me was maybe if more people proposed, more people would feel comfortable turning down proposals because I think in our in our current like relationship paradigm, you don't really propose to someone unless you know they're going to accept, right? Like I know my partner and I, although undecided about whether we'll we'll get properly married, have an agreement that we'll like agree when it's like okay to propose. <laughs> um and I mean we have children, right? Like we're not we're not really figuring out if we want to spend our lives together at this point. Um but I wonder if in a time when proposals were as you said like as common as first dates. I would say maybe third dates. I would say the proposal maybe replaces the like so is this a relationship conversation. I do wonder if it was easier to say no. Yeah, I think so. I think that there was definitely more of a like, especially in the case of, like, the Billy Andrewses and the Charlie Sloans and the whatever the hired boy's name was. I think, yes. And so I, I want to revisit, if I may, this idea of Anne's expectations. Expectations and reality. Because I think this is a really interesting theme that we can actually trace, at least from Anne of Avonlea, but I think even from Anne of Green Gables, is, like, Anne... Because Anne... And Anne is a person of fantasy. Like she gets ideas in her head and then and then she has to test them against reality. And I think it's really interesting how she like doesn't learn her lesson about that almost because you see the things that she sort of like like at the beginning of this book she sort of has to 
learn that, like, being proposed to is not what she thinks it's going to be. And I think there's also another really interesting parallel because in, especially in the first book, Anne has all of these sort of fantasies about grandeur and about, you know, living in a beautiful house with silks and satins and all of this. And there's this really gorgeous moment that I love so much in this book um, where Phil is inviting Anne to come home with her for the Christmas holidays. And she's describing, you know, this lavish house and these beautiful parties and all of these fashionable people. And Anne describes what Green Gables is going to be like. And it's, you know, it's a very homely country picture and then and I just I I just love this but then she's like but you know the transforming thing is there will be love there um and I think that's a really good example of Anne has sort of like figured out what her priorities are and like understands that like you know the things that she really valued or thought that she valued when she was younger like all these you know beautiful lavish material things and status and that sort of thing aren't as important as like family and love, whereas she holds on to these sort of like fantasy ideals much longer when it comes to romance. It's true, but I do feel like that's maybe a um, also just an age thing. Like there's you grow out of those ideals at different stages, and I do think it takes a while to figure out the romance thing. Because I don't think I learned the lesson of, I guess, what love is and how I fall in love and what works for me until I was you know 26 27 um but like things like what my ideal life would be or what my ideal what I wanted out of life I think I figured out a little earlier yeah no I think that's super fair I think that makes a lot of sense um because I I definitely have experienced sort of something similar and yeah it took me a lot longer to sort of figure out yeah like what a real satisfying relationship would look like but as opposed to sort of, like, what did I think um, I wanted. And I think, like, Anne and Roy reminds me a lot of my first boyfriend. Um, and, I mean, Anne, Anne has slight a leg up on me in that she actually does like men. Um, but, <laughs> like, my first boyfriend was very good at being a boyfriend. And, like, Roy, very good at being a suitor. Um... But I did not like him at all. He was boring and we didn't have any of the same interests. And like... But he was like very good at being a boyfriend. So... Yeah, I mean, I would say like a lot of the people I dated, uh, I didn't like them. And they also weren't very good at being a boyfriend. Um, For those listeners who are tallying up numbers, yes, I got married at 21. Yes, I figured out what I wanted at 26, 27. This math adds up. Just realized I said those things back to back, and it's true. Those numbers tell a story. Um, And, you know, I think we have a lot of widows in the book. We have a lot of older women telling their side of things, um, which is fun in this kind of environment but you do I think see a generational shift there too from well you got married when you got married and you had your kids you know Anne talking about how her mother had already had her by the time she was Anne's age um and you are starting to see these these girls be able to think about more than marrying for security because they can work you know Anne does have the option of saying 
well, okay, I didn't win a scholarship, so I can work for a year and save up and then do my next year of school. She's not saying, well, I didn't get a scholarship, so I guess I have to drop out of school. And that's a really new thing for that generation. And that's something that's really fun about when this book is set. Yeah, this is very much on the cusp of like, this is when it became, like right around when it became possible for a single woman to support herself and for that to be viable, which is really cool. Um... Yeah, and it does make for a really interesting dynamic among and and among all of her friends. Um, but yeah, I think I think we do have to kind of reconsider Anne as the manic tri- pixie manic Trixie peem girl. I'm sleepy, manic pixie dream girl in this one because I would say in Anne and Anne of Avonlea, I would say there's a strong argument that she is. In Anne of the Island, I would say they're definite. She definitely is not. Yeah, because I think I think a main quality of the manic pixie dream girl is. This sort of, like, enchanted life, we don't get to see any flaws. Like, I think that's a big part of it. And we really get a good look at Anne's flaws in this book, which is perhaps why it's one of my favorites. Like, I just, I find the whole thing with Roy so endearing. And I think, I think part of it is maybe also, like, I think Ellen Montgomery does a fantastic job of writing Anne's lack of self-awareness in a very, like, funny way. Um, and, and I just find that whole, like, Anne being so sure and also being a little bit unsure, but, like, completely convincing herself that she is sure and then sort of figuring it out in a fell swoop at the end and feeling like she's made a huge mistake. I find that so endearing and humanizing. Absolutely. And I would say also seeing Anne among her peers, um, seeing Anne among girls who are more like her. Before this, we've only seen her among her classmates who have all kind of fallen into different roles. And Anne has fallen into the kind of weird girl role in her school. And then Anne goes to Redford and meets Philippa, who is also a weird girl um, and who very clearly kind of embraces that role and is also a quirky kind of beauty in the same way Anne is and uh and kind of challenges Anne like I definitely get the sense when they first meet that Anne is intrigued by Philippa but maybe isn't necessarily sure she likes her yet and there's also again a little hesitation when Philippa wants to move in with them and it is kind of a fun exploration of can Anne be okay with not being the quirky one. And Anne becomes sort of a more sensible looking person when faced with Philippa, who is just just really weird. <laughs> so that I said that very simply. But I mean she is. She's she's wildly indecisive. She's very upfront about who she is entirely. Even her beauty is described as being kind of, you know, quirky beauty. Um and it's fun to see how Anne changes and how our perception of Anne changes when there is another not like other girls character around. Yeah, absolutely. I think it you're right, I hadn't been thinking of that exactly, but Anne is Anne is surrounded by a much different cohort in these books, which really changes it. Cause she's not suddenly the odd one out from from the friends that she's mainly surrounded by. She is surrounded by like true peers, and I think that does make a big difference. Because I and and Ella Montgomery's no longer 
so much trying to convince us that Anne is better than the people she's around, too. Which I, which I think is refreshing. Um, but yeah, let's, can we talk about Philippa for, for a little bit? Because I, I mean, we started to, but I, I love Philippa. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about Philippa. I love, I mean, I just find her very uninteresting and intriguing character. Um, I love Philippa's, like, self-assuredness and self-confidence. Like, Philippa, at the beginning of the book, is somebody who knows all of her good points and all of her flaws and is just like, yep, this is just who I am and, you know, ta-da. She is remarkably self-aware, especially for an 18-year-old. She is remarkably self-aware and remarkably self-confident. I do think one of those things is seeing the difference between uh, wealth also. Um because Philippa has always had security. And I think when a person has always had security, they've had more time usually for for uh, building self-confidence and self-knowledge. But yeah, I mean, she's, she's such a powerful character. And she graded me at first, um, which is a really strong writerly decision on Ella Montgomery's point, part. Because then as we get to know Philippa, we come to understand that Philippa often grates people at first. And... You, you've got to get to know her um, to see who she really is and just accept all that she is with the same ease that she accepts all that she is. Yeah, absolutely. And that is that is now that, yeah, you mentioned it, it's a very clever way to introduce her character and sort of really get us to get to know her. I think you make a very good point about part of what allows Philippa to be so so self-confident and self-assured is is the privilege that she's enjoyed. But yeah, I just, I love her. I think she's just so she's just so much but like in a in a very different way than Anne is so much but also in a similar way um and she's just she's so fun and yeah I would say Philippa is the first character we meet who is more than Anne yeah yeah I give you that definitely definitely at the very least the same character the only character of Anne's age who is more than Anne. Um, I had forgotten, uh, just as a side note on people who are too much, that Rachel Lind just never becomes sympathetic in the books. See, that's interesting, because I don't know if I actually agree with you there. Um, and I don't know if this is, like, maybe also, like, my experience of specifically the musical Anne and Gilbert peeping through, but I, I have a soft spot for Mrs. Lind. I do not. I don't know. I think I have a soft spot for Mrs. Lind. I I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say like uh, Mrs. Lind is obviously a deeply flawed character, and she's got some big problems. But like I think she loves people very genuinely, and um and like shows it pretty well in most cases, which I which I appreciate and. No, I find I, I like Mrs. Lind a lot. Um, I understand why you don't, um, but I, I really like her. Well, we can disagree on that point. I will say the one moment that I did have sympathy for her was when she talks about the people who took over her house digging up her lilies that her husband had given her uh, for her anniversary. That was the one moment when I was like, okay, maybe she does have a human heart. And is not, in fact, a ragbag stuffed with gossip and insults. Uh, but anyhow, back to Philip. 
<laughs> but okay, just going back though, like th- I think the moment that Mrs. Lynch turns around for me is in the first book when Matthew like enlists her for help with getting a new dress for Anne and she's like yes absolutely and just like sort of dives into it and and you can see sort of like her empathy both for Matthew and for Anne but I mean but she also gets to get one over on Marilla with that right and like Rachel and lives to get one over on Marilla (laughs) but it's in like that's how they're friends though Okay, so I'm thinking about this in terms of, um, sorry, I'm going to veer off into personality tests for a second. Sure. Uh, so there's, like, the only, like, actually, like, psychologically proven personality test is the big five, which is, it's, there's, like, five qualities that you are, like, you get, like, a percentile score. And so it's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Um... And so, like, the dynamic that people have in friendships, this is something that I've, like, observed in my life, is, like, really differs based on where they are in the agreeableness spectrum. So, like, I, I like, scoring, like, in the 90s on agreeableness. I am very agreeable. Um, whereas the opposite end of that spectrum is quarrelsomeness. And so my, my roommate is very quarrelsome. And so... And her partner is also very quarrelsome. And so, like, the way that they interact um, and, like, the way that they show love to each other is very, like, quarrelsome and, like, that sort of thing. And so, like, I think that Mrs. Lind and Marilla also, to an extent, are both, like, kind of just quarrelsome people. And this is, like, partially how they express their friendship to each other. Like, these are not women who express friendship to each other by being like, Marilla, I love and value you so much. Rachel, I love and value you so much. Well, and I can get that. But do your roommate and and her partner, you know, then also insult each other widely to everybody they can meet in order to feel superior? You know, like, do they like... Would they, like, say to a child, wow, you sure are ugly? Would they, like, scare the living Jesus out of a child uh, to get them to stop doing things that kids do? Yeah, you know, would they just talk a whole lot about how they know better than every other person in the world and everyone else is an idiot? I just, I don't, there's a, there's a type that, like, ooh, Oh, I, I, I hope you ever won't go to the, won't ever go to the States, Anne. That's what. Like, I just don't like her. I think Ellen Montgomery also loves to write characters who have bits. And like, Mrs. Lynn's bits, bit, is hating Yankees. So I think because I have known an an older Anglo-Canadian woman who also hated Yankees and talked about it uh, as much as Rachel Lind does and held it against me that I am American. Um, I have a real disinclination to forgive Rachel Lind. Extremely fair. That's like super reasonable. (laughs) And I get that. And again, like, I think that part of my positive regard for Rachel does very much come from, like, 
the from Anne and Gilbert and yeah no you you make very good points Ms. Rachel has some distinct disagreeable qualities okay so I'm just gonna put it to you this way I'm not trying to convince you to dislike Rachel Lind but like much as you can find her a sympathetic character would you want to hang out with her certainly not for prolonged periods of time no do you want Rachel Lind to live next door to you you know, I like can't. I truly can't decide because I think she would be kind of hilarious to have as a next door mm. neighbor. Um, and I think that she would also like she would insult you a lot, but she would also like knit you sweaters and bake you cookies. Yeah, but she would be passively homophobic until your dying day. Oh, that no, she totally would. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so no. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to take this away from you. (laughs) I like to think that Mrs. Lind could be made to change her mind about the gays. But, uh, I mean, there's no canonical record of her opinion on them. But Well, I mean, she and Marilla are a couple, so there's that. Very much. Oh, I'm excited for you to read the next book. Do they finally get married? Not not re-Marilla and Rachel, but re-another, like couple of old women who are definitely deeply in love okay that's nice i do like uh i do like how phil and Anne. i feel like have a little bit of a like a crush moment before they settle into friendship oh definitely yeah like i don't read that they pine for each other but like there's definitely the Anne being like wow she is the most beautiful girl i have ever seen in my whole life so we're not going to be reading Anne's House of Dreams on the podcast, but I want you to read it just in your personal life because there's some real good, like, homoerotic tension with Anne and another female character in that book. While she's married to Gilbert? Yeah. Sexy. There's one more point I want to make. Cool. Go for it. So I think I figured out what it is about Anne of Green Gables that captures the imagination for so many people and what has captured my imagination. Here is my theory. Anne of Green Gables is Animal Crossing. (laughs) So I have never played Animal Crossing, so I need you to elaborate on this. So in Animal Crossing, the uh, most recent version of which came out conveniently at the beginning of the quarantine in North America, uh, and people have been getting married in Animal Crossing and having parties in Animal Crossing and going on dates in Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing is a game where um, you move into a small town or in the newest version, an island, and the benevolent capitalist landlord Tom Nook offers you a house for free, only there's you know a loan you have to pay off for some other things, and you catch fish and you catch bugs and you pick fruit and you cultivate flowers and you make friends with your neighbors and your biggest concern at any moment is that you have to pay off loans for upgrades of your home because when you first get it it is a small one-room house and then you can expand but there's not really any stress there because the only penalty you have for not paying off your loan is that you can't upgrade your house more you can uh, you can play the stock market, which is the S-T-A-L-K market, where you buy turnips and then sell them back and they have fluctuating prices throughout the week. It's really, it's really pleasant. It's a nice millennial fantasy for those of us who are never going to own a home. Except at this point, I'm kind of feeling more optimistic that the housing market might crash. Um, 
And uh, an Anne of Green Gables is just this nice little world you can enter where your greatest concern is that, you know, somebody might not think your nose is nice. And that's pleasant. Yeah, it's very much a fantasy of simple domesticity. And like, it's true, all of the problems are fundamentally very low stakes. Um, I mean, except for like, the love of your life, maybe you haven't realized he's the love of your life, and then he's about to die. And but that that is over quite quickly. So when people die in these books, I am kind of like, this is not the contract we signed. (laughs) Fair. Um, but I think that's really, like, these are very much, like, and I think that's part of why I love them. Like, these are not high-stakes books. Um, and you can see that by, so I was, some someone I know was recently going to start reading them and was saying that the, the writing style was putting them off a little bit, but they were going to keep reading for the plot and the characters. Um, and I was like, well, just, like, just forewarning, there's not, there's not really that much plot. Like... <laughs> There's sort of a plot, but, like, don't get your hopes up. Um, they're, they're just sort of a series of little vignettes of everyday life. Um, and so they're very low stakes, and they're very, like you said, they're very cozy. And it's just really nice. It's it's absolutely, it's escapism in its purest form. And for my little heart, which longs to move to Nova Scotia and live a simpler life, um, it's just great. Uh, it really, s- <laughs> I was listening to the audiobook as I was painting a room yesterday, and um, the audiobook narrator, who I will not name because it would be mean, would just really irritated me, um, but also had the most Canadian accent, and uh, it was just, it was just a funny experience. Um, she gave Anne this, like, very high voice, and gave Davy this really annoying, congested voice. I didn't like it. Um, but it was, it is funny to me to think that there are so many people for whom Canada just means Anne of Green Gables. Cause like, it's, I don't know, it's, it's Atlantic, it's the Maritimes, right? It's Atlantic Canada. It really like, it's a very specific culture and Anglo Canadiana is a very specific culture, which I feel like a lot of Canadians don't ever encounter because much like a lot of Americans never encounter sort of high waspy Americans who have been in the States forever and ever. But it really has, I have spent like a good amount of time with like old Anglo-Canadian families. And it was really weird for me to realize like, oh, that's what this culture is. There's this whole weird, pseudo-British, very stodgy, anti-American culture that is old Canadian culture. Um that even people like me who was born in Canada, just like I didn't see that until I was like 20. And it's interesting from a sort of anthropological perspective. Yeah, very much. It's it's very much sort of, yeah, a snapshot of a very particular time and, well, very particular cultural milieu. Yeah, because I think you can find, like you said, cultural milieus like this today still. So I am looking forward to Anne of Windy Poplar's. I uh, really was expecting Anne and Gilbert to get married in this one, and so I'm kind of excited that we get to have a little bit more of this unmarried uncertainty with Gilbert. I guess it's probably not going to get very steamy. No, no. Ellen Montgomery does not write the steam, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I'm sure you can find it. But I'm excited for you to read Anne of Wendy Poplar's because I think a lot of people like, like to 
be down on Andy and Wendy Poplars, but I actually like it quite a bit. Is it the kind of gothic one where she is like taking care of horrible children? No. Okay. There's not. I maybe was. I must be thinking of a different book then. Yeah, like the closest <laughs> you come to Anne taking care of horrible children is like Damien Dora. Poor Dora. I know. Does Dora ever get a personality? No. Poor, poor Dora. I know. I. Dora gets the short end of the stick. But yeah, I, I really like Wendy Poplars a lot. So I, I hope that. Yeah, I'm excited for a conversation about it. Um, and I'm delighted that we've just been reading Anne all month because it's. It's been real fun. I keep forgetting, like, what our show is. We we just make an Anne of Green Gables podcast now. Is this just an Anne of Green Gables podcast? I don't know what's happening anymore. I haven't been out of my house in six weeks. <laughs> I haven't been out of my house in six weeks only reading Anne of Green Gables. It's weird. Well, but then I'm making bread and, like, growing plants so that I can grow my own food so that I don't have to go to the grocery store. And, like, despite the fact that I am a podcaster and, like, my career depends on the internet and technology that was not around in Anne of Green Gables, I'm kind of like, well, here I am teaching the children their letters while the bread rises. Oh, fantastic. I'm not teaching the children their letters. The baby's too young to learn his letters. (laughs) Well, he can say don't now. So that's something. (laughs) Being able to say don't and being able to recognize letters are different things. And presumably six and a half year old already knows her letters? No. (laughs) Okay. I mean, she knows the alphabet. She can't read. I I like, I think that's okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, she just started school this year. I started reading when I had just turned three. So I have ridiculous expectations for reading in children. And so I just feel like I have no clue when children are supposed to read. I mean, I think it's all partially like supposed to is like a bullshit concept, right? Like I yes, I true. started reading very late. Um, and like my parents were like worried about it. And like now I make a podcast about books. So yeah, you definitely can read. Like I've seen you do it. <laughs> Verified. I can read. <laughs> I can read good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at the yeahpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to the people who have been doing that. It's always nice to get emails. Follow us on Twitter at yeahpodcast and individually at tefferbear, at the Balesasaurus, and at caddy double underscore D. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yahpodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Catherine Resch, Lizzie Tenhove, and Chantal Thomas. And I want to do just a quick shout out, which is that it was Erica's birthday last week. So happy birthday, Erica. And Erica loves Anne. Erica fully has told me that she considers this month to be a birthday gift. So you're welcome, Erica. We love you. (laughs) We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. And by sharing this episode with a friend, perhaps a friend who, uh, uh, oh god, I, um, uh, fr- uh, uh, doesn't know who they love. <laughs> <laughs> Stop.
Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Trevor Ajabian. That's me. And edited by Tom Zalatni. That's my honey. As part of the Upward Network, you can find out about all the great shows on our network at upwardnetwork.com. Thanks. I'm Tom Zalatni, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.